Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Kayla. And you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Where me and my mom will bring you a new case discussion every week. We also advocate for victims through interviews with family, experts, survivors, and more. Okay, guys, I'm so sorry that you're getting this episode one day late on Thursday instead of Wednesday, especially since it's a part two, but I was having serious cable problems. The cable that connected to my audio interface just kept cutting out and it made my audio really bad. And we actually recorded this episode earlier without my microphone, like my regular audio and microphone and all of that. And I apologized in it, like just stick with me through one episode of like this horrible audio and like it's a good episode. So you'll want to listen anyway. But then when I was trying to edit it, it was so bad that I just could not put it out there. I had to make you wait instead of listening to an hour of terrible audio that kept uh, it, it it was horrible. Like I, I seriously just could not bring myself to put it out there. So that's why you're getting a part two just a little late, but I promise the wait was worth it because this episode is insane. So with that, are you ready to dive into part two? So I wanted to tell you guys something that I just thought you'd find funny. So earlier this week, we got back from Mexico and I was talking with one of my clients at my first day back at work and we were just chatting about like family drama on vacations and she was asking like, do you guys have that? And I'm like, yeah, of course. But I was telling her this trip that we just took to Cabo was a really good family vacation and no one was really fighting. And I was like, but the only fight anyone really got in was me and my mom because we got in a fight before we left for Mexico (laughs) and what cracked me up is she like chuckled and was asking me like oh my gosh you guys still fight even though like you do this podcast together and blah 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 oh my gosh yes we fight still trust me and it it was just funny because and maybe you guys thought that too. Like we never fight because we do this podcast together. All this stuff. No guys, our fight before we went to Mexico was in fact about recording. So I think podcast hosts still fight, especially when it's a mom and daughter. Like, don't you, don't you think mom? Yeah. Especially when we're supposed to do it and you're late. I was like five minutes late that day, you guys. And like I came upstairs five minutes late. We were going to record before we went to the airport. She was super stressed out that day. So she was like all pissed about it. And then we got in a fight. And then I was like, well, now we can't record because this is so awkward. We wouldn't have made it on time to our flight. We definitely would not have made it. So you know what? It worked out even though I had cable problems now and because we didn't record um this is coming out late to you but it all worked out so getting back to the episode we ended part one after just diving into what conscious development was this group following terry hoffman who created the church 
It's this mixture of religion, metaphysical concepts, and all of Terry's extraordinary abilities, such as talking with the dead, putting protective shields over people to protect them from car accidents and illnesses like cancer, and things start getting strange when Terry selects an elite group of her followers called the Teachers to join her weekly for battles against the Dark Lords. Well, these battles against the Dark Lords had started happening as Terry and Glenn's relationship was in turmoil. Remember how I said in part one, there was this unbalanced power dynamic in their relationship. Well, Glenn's family could see right through Terry and they didn't appreciate her antics. It wasn't necessarily about the actual age gap between Terry and Glenn. Although that shocked them, it was more about how Terry used her advanced age to manipulate Glenn, how she acted more like a parent, directing him to do as she said. Glenn's mom always questioned Terry's intentions because her son was an addict who was still in the throes of his addiction when him and Terry become romantically involved. So what did she want with him? Through high school, Glenn had struggled at home with his families. Ten tensions are rising as his behavior becomes more destructive. His parents are pushing him to be the way they want him to be, and he's pushing back by rebelling. Once he reaches adulthood, Glenn finds his escape from his parents that he you know, found really overbearing when he heads off to college. He needed a break from the constant arguing within his home that stemmed from the choices he was making. Why couldn't his parents just understand that he was different than them? He saw a different path in his life. He couldn't fit the mold they desired. Glenn was the creative and quiet type. He often was living in his own world, in his own mind daydreaming. His brother Wayne said, quote, Glenn was searching for something, accept it as he was, not as someone else wanted him to be. And this is exactly what we see in a cult. They prey on people who are looking for something more in their life, people who want to be seen and accepted. These groups often lure these people in by being that for them in the beginning. They push the narrative that the group is their family, that the group has their back, even if no one else does. And oftentimes, they push these people to limit contact with their family, under the pretense that their family isn't there for them the same way that the group is. That's how so many people get tied up in these groups. Yeah, I always wonder how people get stuck in these groups. Yeah, and I think that's a question that a lot of people ask when listening to stories like this. It's just so hard to wrap your mind around the manipulation and all of that. But I think our brains are so easily manipulated, like on a level that we don't even quite understand. I know it's sad. It's so sad. So remember from part one, the high school boy whose girlfriend was predicted by Terry to be killed in a car accident? Well, we know Terry told this young man that his girlfriend would be saved if he did an emergency meditation with Terry. Well, that student was Glenn Cooley, the man she goes on to marry as her second husband many years after that incident. Glenn had been coming to meetings with Terry since he was a teen. This is why there's an unbalanced power dynamic in their marriage, and this is why his parents find the relationship to be so wrong. Oh, he had been going there since he was a teen? Yeah. Crazy, right? Oh, got it. 
Yeah, that's a little. That's a little mm, creepy. Definitely creepyish. <laughs> For sure, it's just groomy, groomy, groominish. Yeah. So obviously, even though he's an adult now, there is just this unbalanced power dynamic, and it does create control in the relationship. As soon as Terry and Glenn married, the dynamic was clear. Terry was in control, and she did not want him around his family. This stemmed from their disapproval of her and her need to control Glenn. Terry was usually in a full-blown meltdown if Glenn spent more than a half hour at his parents' home. On some occasions, she would straight up drive her car to their home and sit outside honking her horn until Glenn comes outside, gets in the car with her, and goes home with her. Red flag of being way too controlling. Mm -hmm. Well, this behavior, it continues. Glenn's eyes were opening to the fact that he was trapped in this relationship, but he wanted out. He talked with his mom and told her that not only did he want to shed his religious background and leave conscious development, he was also ready to divorce Terry. So soon after this, Glenn has that hard conversation with his wife, telling Terry that he needed to go his own way. And on November 24th, 1976, Terry files for divorce. Right after this, Glenn files a waiver for a speedy divorce, and by January 27th, 1977, the divorce is finalized. Can you refresh my memory on their age when they got married? Terry's about 38 years old when they got married, and Glenn was around 24 or 25. Now Glenn's free from the grips of conscious development and Terry. He takes a deep breath, feeling at peace with his newfound freedom and the dreams of everything he could do now with his own life. He was able to live this way for only six days before Glenn Cooley's body is found dead inside his parents' cabin on Lake Grapevine. It was his ex-wife Terry and fellow Conscious Development members Alice Hoffman and Ben Johnson who had rushed out to the cabin to find Glenn's body after Terry finds this alarming note in her safe. And when an autopsy is done, it's determined that Librium and Valium were present in his blood along with a couple pills found beneath his body in that cabin bed. Glenn was found with his clothes on, laying peacefully. Okay, say again what he tested positive for. Librium and Valium. Oh, yeah, like sedatives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he tests positive for those, and he's deemed to have taken his own life via a drug overdose. Okay. That note I mentioned just a minute ago was found in Terry's safe. It was discovered by her on February 2nd, just before driving out to the cabin, and it read, quote, Glenn Cooley, give Terry Cooley all my property, both personal and real. This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishing for the house on Dunhaven Road, and all cash. I ask that this last will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason. Last but not least, I give all of my love to all my family and friends. As explanation for all of this, I can't really say what it is because of, but I can say what it is not because of. It is not because of my divorce to Terry, past drug experiences, inability to cope, etc. What it is, I myself know, but don't have the words for. Is it in his handwriting? Yeah. 
I mean, they think so. It is. It does seem that he wrote it. It is suspicious, but the sad thing is, is like with his drug use, mm-hmm. you never know. You d- you would just assume that it was, you know, drugs. Absolutely. And that's why police are thinking this. He, you know, he was probably depressed. He, you know, had a drug overdose. He's been an addict. Like, it's totally normal that they would think this. This note is left there, whatnot. It's a very weird note and will, but it mm. does seem normal. Did it, did it say in your research that he was prescribed? Um, It didn't say if he was or not. I mean, it doesn't really matter because... People are going to abuse prescription you know, or non. Like you can get them without being... Yeah. Totally. So it's a pretty suspicious note, right? Mixed with the fact that he is literally found dead six days after his divorce to Terry. But police look at this like, okay, he does have a history of drug abuse. He is in the middle of a divorce. He was probably depressed. He took his own life. So his death is ruled a suicide. And maybe it was. As you'll see through these deaths connected to Conscious Development's leader, Terry Hoffman, many of them truly seem like suicides. And that's one of the big problems here. Was Terry actually murdering these people and making it look like a suicide? Or was she convincing her followers to take their own lives and leave their money to Conscious Development? This question is a huge issue that comes up later on in court, because how can you prove that someone manipulated another person to take their life? And is that illegal? Right. Yeah. But there probably wasn't any laws on that. Yeah. I highly doubt it because like, how do you prove that? And that's what you'll see is the question here. It really was. That note really was in his writing. In other... um, (laughs) Other deaths surrounding conscious development, some of them even leave tape recorders behind. So it is truly them on tape saying, like, I'm taking my own life. Mm. Well, there's got to be some stuff coming in now. I mean, I know this was in like the 70s, but you've heard about the girl whose boyfriend committed suicide. Yes. Over text, she like basically was telling him to do it. Yeah, that case broke my heart. I read all the messages. I was like crying my eyes out. She just needed to be there for him. Yeah, and got convicted. She better have gone to jail. I found it to be criminal. Mm -hmm. Manipulating someone to take their own life isn't right. You know, like if they wouldn't have taken their life without your manipulation it seems wrong to me but can we make that criminal yeah like it's now probably getting looked at and people are going to make laws around it right i mean i think so because they just put you know that girl we were just talking about into prison but back then they really didn't know how to go about this So Glenn's family was destroyed by the news of his passing, but they were immediately asking questions because they noticed Terry didn't seem to be grieving during his funeral. And we've said it here before. It's been said on any true crime podcast or documentary that you cannot judge someone else's grief just because it doesn't look the way you want it to. And I find that true, but I also think when it's mixed with a ton of other red flags, Maybe it should be taken into consideration, but maybe I'm a hypocrite because there's some cases where I'm like, well, you can't judge them. And there's other cases where I'm like, no, that's so weird. You know, no case is exactly the same, but there are 
times where I'm like, yeah, that, that was weird, even though we're not supposed to judge how someone else grieves. Glenn's family members, they remember that Terry would suddenly stop crying to look up and glance around just to see how everyone else was reacting to her cries. It just felt off. But Terry later argues in court that this judgment isn't fair and it's not true. Quote, for them to blame me for Glenn's death is just totally awful because I did nothing but love that man. I tried to help him as long as we were married. I tried to help him after we were divorced. So to Glenn's family, Terry seemed like she was brushing Glenn's death off to the side, like she didn't care much about what had happened. But to her conscious development members, Terry was making Glenn's death a big deal. After Glenn's passing, the teachers of conscious development all meet up with Terry for their first weekly back Black Lord battles after, you know, the death. And Terry tells them, listen, Glenn was taken off this earth by the Black Lords. They did this to him. They poisoned his blood and all of our blood has been poisoned by them. The teachers are in shock. Each week they have been taken into another realm to fight these demons, but even that wasn't enough to keep them from slaying one of their members. But Terry tells everyone to calm down because she has a solution, of course. This is when her sidekick, Sandy, pulls out a boatload of syringes and takes out some alcohol wipes, starts wiping them down. Teachers are even more alarmed. What is going on here? This is when Terry and Sandy explain that what's going on here is bloodletting. Members of conscious development would need to allow Sandy to drain just a little bit of their blood. By letting this blood flow out of their bodies, this poison inside them planted by the Black Lords would also leave their bodies. If they wanted to live, this is the only option. Some members are officially spooked, right? I'd be the same. Like, nope, absolutely not. Not for me. After this bloodletting conversation, there are quite a few people who leave conscious development never to look back again. But other members believe in Terry. They justify the bloodletting by telling themselves they only had to give a very small vial of their blood. So what's the big deal? I mean, that is how much blood a doctor's office would take for any testing. It is mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't do that. That's what I mean. I I don't get it why people stay. But like I've said, like they are truly manipulated. Our brains, I mean, you see it in wrongful convictions. Like It is hard for you to ra- wrap your mind around when your brain hasn't been manipulated uh. in these ways, but it is. it happens. Look, if someone's telling you to do something a little bit crazier out there, don't do it. Yeah, definitely, guys. That's, you know, that's some advice for you. Do not bloodlet yourself. (laughs) Now, while they talked themselves into this being normal, they also feared the dreaded call that they were poisoned. Members would receive a phone call whenever Terry felt that, you know, she needed to have them do a bloodletting ceremony. She'd call them up and be like, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you are poisoned. So come on over. We'll do a little bloodletting ritual and we can save you. One member that leaves around this time, Joyce Tepley, said, quote, Once you give up your own decision-making process to someone else, however wonderful they may be, you've lost your integrity. 
Now, time goes on after Glenn's death, and remember how during the Black Lord battles, Terry would bring certain names into these battles, naming people who wronged her or turned away from conscious development as one of these evil spirits the crew was fighting. Well, Terry continues harping on Sandy about her daughter, Susan Devereaux. Over and over, she would let Sandy know that Susan Devereaux was a negative energy on this earth. Again, this is where I get big time Chad and Lori Daybell vibes because just like in that case, someone's being told that their child is this evil spirit, this negative force. And it really is in these cases, in these cult-like environments, the manipulation that can lead someone to do something detrimental to their kid. But then I also find Lori totally responsible. She should have protected her kids. I don't know. Anyway, in my opinion, Terry's most likely doing this because Susan and Sandy were always arguing because Susan sees right through the BS of conscious development. And she couldn't understand why her mom, Sandy, is so far under the spell of Terry. I mean, she literally watched Sandy drop everything for whatever Terry needed her to do. Susan Devereaux is embarrassed of her mom's ties to conscious development, always making comments to her own friends about how her mom's friends were just so weird. Yeah, it's got to be hard when your parents are the crazies thinking all this crazy stuff. Yeah. And you as a child. Yeah, and it would probably also be like very traumatizing just to be in this situation where yeah, your mom's doing all these weird things, your parents doing all these weird things, and like you really see through it and you're seeing them be so manipulated. Now, remember, it's only Sandy and Susan who live together since Sandy and Chuck Cleaver had gotten divorced. Remember, Sandy got full custody of Susan while Chuck got visitation. Now, as Susan Devereaux is growing older and hitting her teen years, she starts getting really uncomfortable with some of the things her mom is doing. Sandy had started going as far as putting Egyptian totems under Susan's bed. These totems are supposed to help protect Susan from harm and evil. Sandy is trying to rid her daughter of that negative energy Terry says she has. It's during group discussions in conscious development that Terry and Sandy talk about these things. Even some of the longtime members were put off by the talk about a teenage girl being an evil spirit. I was thinking about myself. I would just have the most negative energy out there probably to some of these people. (laughs) Oh, I would too. These people would be like, um, yeah, no, she's negative. She's not falling for any of our crap. Yes, I, I would definitely... Yeah. Be a negative. They would they would not have us in this group. <laughs> now, other members, they're not liking this talk, right? They, they stand up for Susan saying that it's not her fault the Black Lords had gotten to her. They shouldn't be punishing a teenage girl who has no control over these things. The members beg Sandy and Terry to shower Susan with prayers instead of any harmful tactics that punish Susan for this negative energy she supposedly has. I mean, honestly, probably most teenage, teenagers are going to have negative energy. For sure. Teenagers are the worst. <laughs> Like, they truly are soul-sucking, I'm sure. Just from my experience as a teenager, I know I was hard on you, and I'm so worried about having teenagers, but I've just always heard, like, those years are so hard. Teenagers think they know it all. They know everything. Oh, yep. They literally have all the answers. Like, you're a dummy. 
They they definitely are negative energies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we don't need to do anything crazy to rid Susan of this negative energy. <laughs> like that's just a teenager, Terry. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. It it's too much. Obviously, Terry and Sandy are going way too far because they don't see it the way that the other members see it. They have to take an active role in ridding Susan Devereaux of this bad energy. This only made the mother and daughter relationship more toxic. Susan and Sandy hadn't gotten along for a long time. Not only was Susan mortified when her friends came over to her home and met her mom, but she was also left alone all the time because Sandy had this huge devotion to conscious development. Sometimes Sandy would be gone overnight and she would leave Susan alone. Sandy's number one priority wasn't her daughter. It was Terry and conscious development. Because of this, Susan longed to live with her dad, Chuck Cleaver, but he, she wasn't quite at that age to make the decision for herself. Susan looked up to her dad. He never missed a beat and he was always there for her. Chuck's heart ached for Susan as he watches her try, try and fail at connecting with her mom. He watched for Susan's entire life as she tried to gain Sandy's approval, but the mom and daughter never connected until December of 1978. All of a sudden, Susan is telling Chuck that her mom is opening up more. She's wanting to be around more. Things are surprisingly going really well. She even talks with one friend telling her that she's actually starting to like her mom. And it's not a joke, even though her friend might think she's wacky for warming up to her mom. Now, Chuck was happy to see his daughter feeling accepted. This is what she had longed for. But he was also slightly skeptical. You see, Susan had just turned 14 years old, and legally, she could now choose which parent she wanted to live with. Chuck assumes Sandy was putting on an act now to keep Susan around, but he kept his mouth shut. He just wanted Susan to continue building that relationship. He loved seeing her feel like she actually had a mom now. It's one day while Chuck and Sandy are discussing co-parenting that Sandy is reiterating the same things as Susan. She's like, you know what? We're really connected and I figured out why. I blocked something out of my memory and it just recently came back to me. I was molested by my dad as a kid and I never knew it until now. And if that's true, that's absolutely devastating. A huge trauma in Sandy's life. Yeah. At this point, when Sandy is saying this, her dad has already passed away. So Chuck doesn't know what to believe. Although Sandy's brother thought it couldn't be true. He thinks she's being manipulated by Terry. All Chuck knows was that Susan was happier with this new, more attentive Sandy. So he's happy for now. During this time around 1978, 1979, Sandy was engaged to a man named Lynn Fairchild. He was a fellow member of Conscious Development. It's slightly shocking that the two are engaged because Terry contested this. And we know Sandy really listened to what Terry tells her to do. Terry had told this couple that they both needed to stay single for now to focus on their spiritual growth and that a relationship right now would prohibit prohibit them from this. Now, remember, Sandy had already divorced Chuck Cleaver under the pretense that 
he was hindering her spiritual growth. Terry divorced her first husband, John Wilder, because he was hindering her spiritual growth. So this seems like something that Terry says often. I would assume Terry doesn't want to lose control, the control she has over Sandy. So she doesn't want to lose that to Lynn Fairchild. But that's just my speculation. Regardless of Terry's protest to the relationship, Sandy and Lynn tell Terry they believe their spiritual growth would be better together. They are both members of conscious development and they are in love. It was the perfect match because they would push each other to be more devout members of the group since they both firmly believe in it. So it's in February of 1979 that the couple decides to take a little pre-honeymoon trip to Hawaii and they bring along Sandy's daughter, Susan Devereaux. On one sunny day of this trip, Susan and Sandy are anxious to take a dip in the ocean. The waves are calling them. This is exactly how my brothers and sisters are. The waves call us. We love to swim in the ocean. My husband hates it. Lynn is too tired because they just had eaten this big lunch. So he tells the girls to go have their fun and he's going to stay back for a nap. Basically, that would be my husband. I'm going to stay at the hotel. You guys go to the ocean. Have fun. Now, Lynn sleeps the day away and he wakes up at 6 p.m. He's a little puzzled because he thought Sandy and Susan would be back by now, but they're nowhere to be found. He waits around for a bit. He goes down to the beach. He looks for them, but he doesn't find them. So by that evening, Lynn calls the fire department asking for help in locating his fiance Sandy and her daughter, Susan Devereaux. The search starts at the beach where Sandy and Susan had planned to be. Soon rescuers are out on the water when they see what looks like a woman in the distance. They race to her and find Sandy sitting on top of a reef there in the water, and she's alone. Sandy says that her and her daughter decided to take a raft out into the ocean, which some people say was a blown up air mattress, but I don't know this to be true for sure. Basically, they paddled out onto the water in some sort of raft or flotation device, and they make it out pretty far. They're too far out when things start to get scary. Sandy says that the waves just got too big. Soon, they're being knocked off of their raft and into the deep blue water. Sandy says she watched as a wave crashes over top of Susan and the current pulls her down into the water. And then Susan never comes back up to the surface. Sandy says she is now searching for Susan frantically, crying out her name, but there was only silence. She was never able to find Susan while she's waiting out there to be rescued. Oh my gosh. I know. How? It's just... It doesn't make sense. This death is sadly the worst, I think. Not the worst because all deaths, I mean, you can't compare what death is like worse than one or better than another. But in this string of what seems to be a bunch of suicides, this death seems the darkest because Susan Devereaux clearly didn't go out on that water to take her own life. And what's really sad is that she has two wills. So you're telling me a 14-year-old has two wills and months after these wills are created, 
she tragically dies in an accident out on the water with her mom. And that's why it seems so dark to me because if this is something sketchy and not an accident, that would mean that Sandy took her daughter's life in the name of conscious development. This would be a full-blown homicide, not even a manipulation to take your own life, right? Like, it's just really sad. Anyway, Sandy was injured from hitting the reef. So once rescuers locate her, she's taken to the hospital while the search for Susan continues out on the water. It was 1 a.m. in Dallas when Chuck Cleaver gets a call that his daughter was missing. Susan and Sandy had an accident in the ocean. We can't find Susan. Chuck's heart feels like someone is squeezing it as he tries to catch his breath amidst the panic. He is able to get a hold of a close friend named Gene Cocker, who agrees to fly with him to Honolulu. The duo hop on a plane that same day, but just before he boards, his family members anxiously waiting back at his home receive a phone call. Susan Devereaux had been found. She drowned in the accident and she has died. Chuck's world has just been turned upside down, and he's a ball of emotions on the flight over to Hawaii. But soon, his family gets a phone call from one of Terry's conscious development followers, and they're told that they have some documents that Chuck and his family need to see. It's a will that his 14-year-old daughter had apparently left behind. Chuck's just worried at this point about getting to the hospital, talking to Sandy about what happened, so he pushes that to the side, and his family worries about going to grab the will and see what this is all about. Once Chuck lands in Hawaii, that's what he does, go to the hospital. He heads there, and when he sees Sandy, she looks genuinely shocked and devastated. She's crying, she's apologizing, but then Terry walks in, and Chuck explains Sandy as all of a sudden having her eyes glaze over. Immediately, she stops crying, and then she looks at Chuck and says, Susan is going to be better off in heaven. He hates Terry. How could she do this to Sandy? How did she create this person she could control that even in the midst of grieving her own daughter, she's going to buck up the moment Terry walks in the door? It was really strange. And when things settle in, it's time for Chuck to see these documents that conscious development claim to have. Apparently, on August 18, 1978, Susan Devereaux writes two wills. The first was written to Terry and her third husband, Ben Johnson, who she had married five months after Glenn Cooley's death. Remember, Ben was one of the three people who discovered Glenn Cooley's body in his parents' cabin. It was Terry, Ben, and another member, Alice Hoffman. Anyway, in that will, Susan says she leaves her rock collection to her school science department, her books to the library, stuff like that. It seems like something a 13-year-old would be writing, but then it's written that she will be leaving all of her money to conscious development for a school to be built. For her mom, she would leave her art, and her dad, she gives him her basketball, her whistles, and all her jewelry is going to go to Terry. Now, there's a second will, and it says, quote, I give device and bequeath all my property, including rights, titles, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed, wherever situated, to Terry Johnson, who to me, who has been to me like a second mother. She goes on in this will to ask for it not to be contested by any other family members. She just really wants her money to go to Terry and conscious development. Yeah, right. She didn't even (laughs) like him. 
exactly. Yeah. Like she's not going to write in her will that she's giving everything to Terry and she's like a second mother to her. No. And it was her writing. Well, I'm not even sure these wills got super looked into. I mean, her death was deemed an accident. So if law enforcement did look into these wills, then yes, they would have thought it was her writing. But a 14 year old can't have a will in right. Texas. It's actually a law. So I they're nothing. People would end up killing kids left and right. Yeah. Like you can't put a will in your kid's name and like get all this money. Yeah. It's just, it wouldn't make any sense. So yeah, these wills are basically just pushed to the side. I'm not sure if they were even super looked into or investigated because again, they mean absolutely nothing. Well, her assets aren't even probably worth anything. Yes, as a teenager, probably not. But keep in mind, remember, Sandy has a large trust fund and so does Susan. Oh, okay. Yeah, remember in part one, we discussed that this is why Terry seems, it's speculated, it's assumed by me and many others, that this is why Terry latches onto Sandy so much because she knows Sandy has this large trust fund and that's passed down generationally. So Mm. Susan has this as well. Yeah. But everyone is appalled by the wills. Like Chuck and Susan's friends are just so and family they're just so taken back this had to be fake susan hated conscious development and terry she did not see terry as a second mom she thought they were a bunch of wackos and the whole sketchy thing on terry's end is that she's claiming she doesn't know anything about this will even though it was apparently witnessed by thomas welch and virginia rawlings and it was notarized by alice hoffman All three of them are conscious development teachers, the ones who fought the Dark Lords. And as for Susan not liking her, Terry says she was just too scared to tell her dad Chuck that they were close because Chuck hated Terry so much. She should have been scared doing that will. If any kids get asked to do a will, perk up your suspicions. (laughs) This is why it is not legal for kids to have a will. I, I... Again, absolutely, they are so stupid that they made her do it. But I'm just, I'm so heartbroken for her. Like, did she even do the will or did her mom do it? Yeah. And these members of conscious development, you know, like, was it just made up by her mom and Terry? Like, was she even there? I mean, it's notarized by conscious development members and witnessed by conscious development members. So are they just saying it's her will? Like she, Susan might have been completely not tied to it at all she thought they were super weird so in my opinion I would think that Susan didn't even know that she has these two wills her this was just done behind her back and that's why conscious development members are the ones who have to notarize it again Alice Hoffman was the one who notarized it she was there with Terry and Ben Johnson when they find Glenn's body, right? So all these people are really tied up together. But again, this will means nothing because it's not even legal for a 14-year-old child to have a will. So everything just goes to Susan's parents. Terry gets nothing. I mean, unless Sandy probably gave her something because, you know, Sandy would probably give Terry whatever she wanted. But what that will did do was create a lot of suspicion in people about Susan's death, even though it was ruled an accident. 
It was determined that no drugs were found in her system and there were no signs of foul play. And even though the water was deemed to be shallow, authorities said currents can still be dangerous in shallow water in the ocean. And that's true. But she died six months after this will was written. It just didn't feel right. Soon after Susan Devereaux's death, Terry and Sandy's bond grows even stronger because Terry's 22-year-old son, Kenneth, dies in a construction accident. Now, another one of Terry's kids would die, and it's long after this story, but it's a sad fact to this case. Her oldest daughter, Kathy, was killed by her neighbor, murdered in 2010. This man was Randy Torres, who was 19 years old when she, when Kathy went to join him for her Bible study one night. And I guess Kathy knew he struggled with these mental health issues, but she wanted to help Randy. However, he kills her that tragic night. So a question I want you to ask yourself through this episode is, does death just follow Terry? Like she's really just this unlucky? Or within the group, are her intentions evil? All those, all those dark lords are following her <laughs> around. Uh, yeah, definitely. They are. She's, <laughs> she's the negative energy. By 1980, Ben Johnson and Terry divorce. At the same time, there is another conscious development couple, couple who is divorcing. It's Alice Hoffman and her husband, Don. Again, she was there with Terry and Ben Johnson to find Glenn Cooley's body. I've said that like a million times, so tie Alice to that. Alice was also the one who notarized Susan's will. Alice and her husband, Don Hoffman, split up just one month after Terry and Ben Johnson divorce. And in less than one month of Alice and Don's divorce being finalized, Terry and Don decide they want to get married. But in Texas, there was a law about waiting 30 days to get married after a divorce. Alice agrees to sign a waiver allowing Don to marry Terry before the 30 days are up. Don Hoffman is now Terry's fourth husband. Wow. <laughs> Did Alice stay in the conscious? No, she does not stay in conscious development. Like, I mean, she signs the waiver, but besides that, she's like, I am out of here. I mean, Terry just literally marries her husband from right under her. Like, they couldn't wait more than 30 days. Like, you just couldn't wait the 30 days to get married. You had to force her to sign this waiver. And, like, I'm sure she feels totally betrayed because this leader she has so devoutly followed married him. It's just, it's too much. Now, Don, he quits his longtime career to work full-time for his new wife in the Conscious Development Organization. Man, do you have a picture of her? <laughs> Let's find one. I'll show you. <laughs> she just must be, like, charismatic and can get people to... A manipulator. Follow her. Yep. She's really good at manipulation. Yep. She was pretty I guess I know it's always really hard to look at pictures when you kind of know like a dark background to someone or like if you don't think they're a good person it's like eh, eh. <laughs> whatever she's whatever well yeah yeah but she wasn't like hideous no she's like I mean her personality is but her personality is super ugly her appearance is not bad she's yeah. a pretty person clearly she you know has a lot of 
you know, these relationships, people find her attractive. But when someone's ugly on the inside, it's just so hard for me to look past it. As it should be, guys, stop saying that murderers are hot. Nothing is more annoying. And if you do that, press unsubscribe. <laughs> anyway, Sandy seems devastated by the loss of her daughter. And look, I don't know if she's just sad about the whole thing or if she's struggling with guilt, because let's be honest, the death of Susan Devereaux seems sketchy. And in my opinion, I don't think it was an accident. Soon, Sandy calls off her wedding to Lynn, and even though her brother pushed her to step back from conscious development, her and Terry grow closer. Two months after Susan's death, Sandy is taking out a $300,000 $300, life insurance policy but for who? Because she's not married and her daughter has died. Well, the beneficiary is, of course, Terry. Ugh. Through this, Sandy also starts giving away all of her things to Terry. She even signs, signs over her own home, her artwork, and her silver to Terry. And it's, you know, Terry's supposed to own it as soon as Sandy dies herself. But once her home is signed over to Terry, Sandy starts paying rent to Terry to live in that home. She is giving Terry her home, and then she is paying Terry to live there. <laughs> it is mind-blowing. Right? Gosh. Like, ah, Sandy, I just want to pluck you out of this story and save you. Now, it's February when a letter is written stating by Sandy, stating that she wants all of her belongings to be used directly or indirectly for the benefit of conscious development. Terry, of course, was in possession of this letter. Another letter is written when Terry marries Dawn and divorces Ben. This is done because it has, has to be noted that Terry is now with new hubby Dawn Hoffman. If she's going to take over all of Sandy's assets, they don't want Ben to have any of it anymore. And on June 12th, 1981, Sandy writes a new and final will. Everything is left to Terry, including all that is left in Sandy's trust fund. A life insurance policy is also set for Terry to be the beneficiary. On September 8th, 1981, Sandy takes one of her close friends and longtime house cleaner, Louise Watson, to Colorado Springs. They are looking at property for conscious development, but then no one hears from them for two days. It's on September 10th that someone spots their car at the bottom of a cliff. Both women had gone off the cliff in their car and had been thrown from it. They both passed away on impact. Sandy's will was written that June and was finalized just three months before this accident. What was really strange is that Louise had a will written the same day in June, writing a will alongside Sandy. And in that will, Louise named Sandy as the executor of her assets, but Terry was put down as the alternate executor. This seems so strange to Louise Watson's friends and family because Louise was not a part of conscious development and she didn't love the group. She found it controlling and Louise thought that Terry was super possessive of Sandy, which she was. Sandy's brother, Croom Beatty, says that Louise and Sandy were super tight. Louise was so loyal to Sandy that maybe she would have just done whatever Sandy asked her to do regarding her will. And was this an accident or was it intentional? Everything Sandy did leading up to the deaths seemed to indicate that this was intentional. There were no skid marks or tire tracks on the road leading to where the women went off the cliff. 
How do people get friends like that loyal to each other? It's just, it's manipulation, obviously. I mean, for Louise, we'll see that Louise puts her will into Sandy's name. Like, she wants Sandy to be the beneficiary. And then maybe Sandy was just like, well, if I die, like, will you just write it out to Terry? Like, I know you don't love her, but that's like what I want. And Kroom, Sandy's brother, is saying like, she probably just would have done that for Sandy. Like, knowing it's supposed to go to Sandy, and then if Sandy dies, it will go to Terry. She was probably just trying to please her friend. On top of the wills and life insurance, Sandy writes this long letter to her brother, explaining that she loves Terry, Terry's so amazing, and she explains to her brother who their grandparents are. So this whole letter, it's like three pages, and it's just not seeming right to him because she's explaining all these things that he would obviously know. Like, he obviously knew who his grandparents were, so why is Sandy letting him know like hey these are our grandparents and this is like what I want them to have of my things or you know now another strange thing about the trip is that Louise actually told Sandy she did not want to go because she was feeling under the weather Louise was 78 years old at the time of this trip but Sandy really pushes her to come anyway and obviously convinced her to do so Sandy's brother, Kroom Beatty, he sees something sinister in his sister's death. So he hires attorney Jim Barlow and files a lawsuit contesting Sandy's will on November 10th, 1981. In this lawsuit, they claim that Sandy was not in her right mind to write out these wills herself without the guidance of Terry. This is a jury trial and Terry testifies and she of course, does not look good. She admits during this testimony that the money she received went directly into her personal bank account and not into the account of conscious development, which in Sandy's will, it is basically being asked for all her stuff to go to conscious development, not Terry specifically. But you know, Terry owns conscious development, so she did what she pleased. She also testified that there were no plans for this school that Susan Devereaux's will mentions. Terry looks like a liar on the stand. It's not going good. And ultimately, she agrees to settle. She will pay Kroom 40% of the life insurance policy, 40% of the sell on Sandy's house, and everything else could be split 50-50. Terry had always stuck to the fact that she never convinced anyone to give her or conscious development anything. She brings up that some people just leave their assets to the church they love. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so any either she says it's normal she says you know people just do this like (laughs) i didn't put my church in my will i hope not i'd be contesting that (laughs) just kidding i'll be like 80 years old when you pass away so yeah you'll probably be like 80 sorry i'll be old my kids can benefit from whatever will you have in place but i won't (laughs) be most likely (laughs) that's all right Now, through Terry claiming this is totally normal, people just give their money to the church, she also says she doesn't want all these assets in place of the people. Their deaths really hurt her. She missed them. What not? And, you know, so did she? Is she just unlucky that all these people around her have died? Anyway, soon after this, conscious development is making the news, and people in Dallas are freaked out by this cult-like group with multiple deaths surrounding them. There's an article published by D Magazine that got Dallas talking about the strange deaths surrounding this group. 
Now, Terry is totally put off by this. She kind of feels bullied. She's all worried about it. But, you know, the article only stated facts and people found it strange. Time goes on and Terry needs a new partner in crime. So a woman named Robin Opstop joins the group in 1974 and becomes Terry's assistant. Robin had a career in counseling the troubled youth, and she grew close to Terry quickly, just like Sandy had. Soon, Robin is isolating herself from her family members and even her own child. Robin is 41 years old at this time, and Terry tells Robin that she's going to set her up with a CIA agent. Terry tells Robin that she's part of this special group who is connected to invisible CIA agents, and she knows the perfect guy for Robin. His name is George G. This is not a real person, you guys, but Robin goes for it. She writes in her journals about the trip she takes with George and how much in love they are. Robin is clearly struggling mentally and being highly manipulated. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is mind-blowing that Terry even thought someone would believe that she's connected to invisible CIA agents. I don't know if these are like agents in another realm. I don't know what she said, but it's mind blowing that she thinks this will work. And it does like how much control do you have to have over someone? And it's hard to understand, but cults prey on these people. So it's March of 1987 when a conscious development member writes a letter to Terry and Robin all about how she can't be close with Robin anymore because she's scared of her. Robin's mental health seemed to be under attack. Conscious development members assumed this was a negative energy. A black lord had gotten to her. Little did they know, it was most likely her own leader, Terry, who is manipulating her and really causing extreme like mental deterioration through this. It's April of 1987 when Robin starts telling her ex-husband that she was terminally ill. She wanted him to look out for their son. She had cancer, although she was not diagnosed by a doctor. She was diagnosed by none other than Terry. Her ex is obviously skeptical and is like, okay, well, I'm setting you up an appointment with an actual medical doctor and you're going to go get your blood tested. At first, Robin's like, no, no, I do not want to go. But ultimately, she agrees. It's after that doctor's appointment that Robin sits in her thoughts for a couple of days. She doesn't have her results yet by the time she goes to see Terry two days after the appointment. After hanging out with Terry, 42-year-old Robin Opstop goes back to her home and takes her own life. In Robin's home, there is a note left behind for Terry. Robin is apologizing in this note for being mean to Terry and saying offensive things to her that day when she visited. She ended the note by saying she loved Terry. Two months before Robin had taken her life, she had written a will leaving all of her land and furniture to Terry. The rest of her random items could go to her son. Did Terry take her own life because she truly believed she was terminally ill? Because when the results come back, after she has already passed away, it is determined she did not have cancer or any other disease that was terminal. Soon after this, Don Hoffman, Terry's fourth and current husband, was starting to get really sick. He's 50 years old at this time, and Terry starts telling all of her friends that 
Dawn is sick because of his negative energy, and it's because he doesn't treat her right. Like the Black Lords are coming for him because he doesn't treat her good. But if the Black Lords are your enemies, why would they care if your husband's treating you good or not? That just doesn't make sense to me, but none of it does. <laughs> so on September 17th, 1988, Dawn is found dead in a hotel room bed by a maid. Next to Don's body, there is a pen and paper where he had written a three-page will, leaving everything to, who would you guess? Terry. But he also left behind a tape recorder with this same info. It is his voice on that recording saying he was terminally ill with cancer. And his death is ruled a drug overdose. He took his own life thinking he was terminally ill. But his autopsy shows that Don never had cancer, and he was definitely not terminally ill. When this information comes out, Terry tells Don's kids that the reason the autopsy didn't show Don's cancer was because the Black Lords hid the cancer from the medical examiner. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. She has an excuse for everything. Somehow she knows. She's always got the answers. Now, Don's kids they are not in the grips of conscious development. So they don't believe a word that Terry says. Instead, they file a wrongful death lawsuit against Terry for causing his death with manipulation, mind control, and hypnosis. Alongside this, the kids file to have Don's will overturned, and they hire Jim Barlow. This is the same attorney who represented Sandy's brother, Croom Beatty. He had always believed that Terry was somehow causing these deaths. I mean, who has at least six people's wills dedicated to them? Now, get this. David and Glenda Goodman were members of Conscious Development, and during the wrongful death suit between Terry and Don's kids, this couple mysteriously dies. Terry let David and Glenda know that they were soulmates in previous lives. Remember, she does that. She actually said they had been Adam and Eve in their previous life. So they're like big time soulmates, right? <laughs> now, this couple was heavy under Terry's wing. Through journals kept by the couple, it was discovered that conscious development members medita meditated three times a day for hours on end. And again, we see this in cults where the members are exhausted from hours on end of service of, you know, like work, things they have to do for the group. Members were meant to also give large portions of their wealth to God, which Terry would collect for God, of course. The journals also talked about the afterlife and their obsession with a purple paradise that Terry promised them. On top of all the money they had sacrificed, Glenda sacrificed her own children by sending them away to live with her family. Terry said she was meant to cut ties with her children because personal relationships hinder spiritual growth. We've heard that before. Again, you can see they are isolating from those around them, all in the name of the group they are following. This couple made every decision in their lives based off of what Terry told them to do. David and Glenda were so isolated that when they died, no one notices they're missing for more than a month. I mean, you would think Terry would notice, but what do I know? 
It was only when a horrid smell is reported by a neighbor that the fire department enters the Goodman's home to find the couple dead inside, both of them 48 years old. Based on their journals, it looked to be a double suicide, and that is how the deaths are ruled. After this letter is found in the trash can, it's directed towards Glenda's son from her talking about her depression and how she really wanted to have the courage to take her own life. Of course, David and Glenda have wills that give everything to, drumroll, Terry. So right now, Terry is in the middle of a wrongful death suit with Dawn's kids. David and Glenda take their lives, and now David's family files a lawsuit against Terry. And law enforcement is finally taking notice of this strange group. The district attorney now officially opens up a criminal investigation into conscious development. Former members of conscious development come forward. One member says they were present when Glenn Cooley's body is discovered at the cabin. Could this be Alice Hoffman? Since she was there with Terry and Ben, she also notarized Susan's will, etc. I wouldn't blame her because for her turning against Terry in this investigation because Terry married Alice's ex-husband immediately following their divorce and as things get strange, like that husband, Don, is now, you know, has now passed away. And did Terry manipulate him into that? Well, this member claims, if it is Alice, if it's not, that things were not quite as they seemed to law enforcement at the cabin, the cabin where they find Glenn Cooley's body. She says they didn't show up to find Glenn dead. In fact, when they arrive, he is alive. And when they walk in, Glenn says that he took drugs to overdose. This member says at that point they were all panicking, but Terry hushes them, shh, reassuring them that Glenn will be happier in the next level. So basically saying he will be happier in heaven. But this member also says that this all happened the day before the note and Glenn's body were officially found. So Those stories don't add up because Terry had claimed back then she had no idea Glenn had intentions of taking his life until she randomly finds that note from him in her safe. Terry, she doesn't deny that a lot of deaths and suicides surrounded conscious development. She just denies manipulating these people and causing their deaths. Sure, there are a lot of people who took their own lives and attended my church, but this can be explained. She says that conscious development attracts these kinds of people who are struggling with mental health. It's not her fault that it happened that way, and she can't control who someone else leaves their assets to. Now, the criminal investigation digs up even more suspicion. Mary Levinson had died of a drug overdose just months after Robin had taken her own life. Mary was 33 years old at the time of her death in 1987. Mary was found in a hotel room. Laying next to her was a tape recorder where she detailed where she had left her money. You see, Mary had just gotten divorced and received a lump sum of over $100,000. So where was that money? Well, she claims that she gave all of her money to different charities, but her family can't know which ones because she doesn't want them trying to get the money back for themselves. Seems a little suspicious because 
after Robin's death, there had been so many deaths connected to conscious development. And, you know, in all those wills, they say, I don't want this will contested. However, she had already been sued by Kroom Beatty. So it almost seems that in Mary's death, she's almost like, don't say you don't want it contested. Like, just don't tell them where the money is because these people are going to sue me anyway. I don't know. Speculation. Assumption by me. That's just my opinion. Now, on that recording, Mary says that she sold her other belongings and she also spent thousands of dollars on her mom's credit card. On that card, she bought a bunch of jewelry. No one knew where it was. Mary's life insurance was also set to go to her brother, or so he thought. But soon he finds out that he was taken off of her life insurance as beneficiary and Mary's ex-boyfriend, a member of Conscious Development, is the new beneficiary. So no one really knows where Mary's money went. But we can speculate, and I'm sure you're thinking the same thing as me. Charles Southern Jr. was another member of Conscious Development, but he didn't live in Dallas. He lived in Chicago. Charles worked his way up through the organization to become a meditation teacher. Charles finds himself in the hospital in 1987. He had been found on the street in an extremely confused state. It's during his hospital stay that he starts to pull away from the organization, regardless of the members constantly visiting him there in the hospital. Their presence bothered his family as they tried to spend time with him during his recovery. He told his mom he was ready to leave conscious development. Soon after being released from the hospital, Charles wants to go on this big trip to India. So he plans it out. And when his family doesn't hear from him for a few days, they assume he made it to his destination. But after time passes and they don't hear from him, they're worried. So they visit his apartment only to find some really strange things. His coat is there. His passport is there. Wouldn't he need that to travel out of the country? And inside the apartment, there are also two notes. Of course, leaving everything of his to Terry. His estate was given to Terry, and in these notes, Charles writes that he was taken over by a negative influence. Sound familiar? He just couldn't fight this himself. But inside that apartment, Charles is not there. Charles has still never been found to this day. His disappearance is unsolved, but his family thinks his ties to conscious development put him in danger, and they think the group has to know something about what happened to him. And this isn't even all. Jill Bounds was murdered inside her home, beaten to death. On first sight, the scene looked to be a break-in, but as law enforcement inspect the home closer, that break-in looked most likely to be staged. Jill was a former member of Conscious Development, and it was just months before her death that she goes to visit Terry. It was really weird because Jill left the group years earlier and hadn't stayed in contact with Terry. It's also noted in the investigation that journal pages were ripped out of Jill's journal during the murder. Police know this was done at that time because of the blood smears on this journal. And the pages removed were tied to being written around 1979. This was a time that Jill was a part of conscious development. So strange that during a murder, pages during her time as a member would be ripped out. Just a little, you know, uh, 
why have I lost the word? I cannot believe my brain is having a fart like this. <laughs> uh, uh, circumstantial evidence. Whoa, that was really bad of me to forget. That was weird. <laughs> anyway, there are other people considered suspects in this murder that have nothing to do with conscious development. You know, ex-boyfriends and other men in Jill's life. So who knows? Because little things tie back to conscious development. But ex-boyfriends are also oftentimes perpetrators in a violent crime like this. There's too many maybes. Way too many maybes. Ugh, it's this. It's just such a hard group to look at and decide, like, what happened? Now, the civil suits are dropped when Terry files for Chapter 13 bankruptcy in October of 1981. So only Sandy's brother, Croom, was successful in gaining back assets of his family member. Terry was able to set up a payment plan and keep her assets through bankruptcy, so nothing's being taken from her, at least at first. But she tries to hide some money from this filing. She had a deal with her attorney to split any earnings she had from selling a book or movie on her life, and that would affect her earnings in the future, which a little like maybe narcissistic to assume you're going to sell uh, like a book or movie to your life she must have thought she was really interesting she thought she was like the cat's meow like she is the greatest (laughs) now terry had also hidden the fact that she was in control of her current boyfriend's bank accounts So his money was her money, and the courts find out that more than $120,000 was, you know, being hidden by Terry. So the judge in her bankruptcy case is pissed, and he changes her filing to Chapter 7, seizing Terry's assets in order to pay back her debt immediately. She was able to keep her home and a car. Now, the criminal case had also been dropped by this time because, like I said earlier, there was just no way to prove that Terry manipulated these people into taking their own lives and giving her their assets. I mean, circumstantially, to me, it seems like a slam dunk case. There's too much connected to her. But prosecutors were not confident in a case against her. However, they take their opportunity after the bankruptcy scandal to arrest her on charges of bankruptcy fraud. She's sentenced to 16 months after being convicted, and it's better than nothing. But Terry appeals this conviction, and it is overturned. The court decides there was not enough evidence to show that she intended to fraud the system. Thankfully, she already served her 16 months by then, so she already spent more than a year in prison, but the conviction now just would not go on her record. At 64 years old, Terry marries her sixth husband, Roger Keenly. He was eight years younger than her at this time, and she continued on leading the Conscious Development Group. She ran this group until her death. After all the lawsuits and the criminal investigations, most people leave the organization. Thank goodness. Good job, guys. But, you know, they, they just saw clear red flags of the damage it had on multiple people's mental health. But some people were still under her spell and they stayed, continuing to follow her teachings. Terry dies on October 31st, 2015, and two years later, conscious development closes down. 
So were these deaths just a coincidence or was Terry running a dangerous group? I mean, at minimum, this group was obviously hyper-focused on the afterlife, and Terry says herself that it promoted death and attracted people who were struggling mentally. Terry's teachings weren't helping these people. They were clearly causing more damage. She was the Dark Lord. (laughs) Seriously. She could have been. (laughs) I can't believe it stayed open all those years. No, absolutely. Like, how did she run it until her death with all these lawsuits and deaths? And I I can't believe anyone followed her until it closed. And that it even went on for two years after her death. Oh, yeah. Now, regardless of all of that, was Terry intentionally criminal in manipulating these people to take their lives in the name of conscious development? so that she could selfishly profit from their deaths by convincing them to name her and her organization as beneficiaries to their life insurance policies and wills. For me, there aren't many coincidences in true crime, and my heart aches for those who were trapped by conscious development. In my opinion, you don't become the beneficiary of so many wills without intention. You don't have this many deaths surrounding you by accident. I think Terry was a negative force all along, evil in disguise. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, host, and edit all these episodes. My mom, Alicia Jenkins, is our co-host, and my daughter, Charlie Waters, is our palate cleanser giver. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Please check us out on all social media platforms and give us a like and a follow and share our posts and make sure to share our podcast with, you know, like 10 of your friends. Let them know that it's your fave and that they should definitely be listening. I'm Charlie and I'm going to give you a palate cleanser. Today we are going to be talking about dinosaurs. I've been watching Dino Dana lately, so I'm going to talk about dinosaurs. And did you know that a Trudon leaps to get its food? So it sneaks up and walks slowly and then it leaps to catch it, its food. I learned this from Dino Dana and mom doesn't have to tell me because I learned it from Dino Dana myself. So she doesn't have to look up it on her phone. Bye. Have a great day. If you visit daretodoubt.org, you're going to find this organization that helps you detach from harmful belief systems. On their page, they say, we use the word cult knowing it might be more PC to say new religious movement. The problem is that all religions were once new and not every cult is religious. For simplicity and the purposes of this page, Dare to Doubt defines cult as any destructive group. How do you determine if a group is destructive? We encourage you to compare your group to the bite model of control established by leading cult expert Stephen Hassan, founder of Freedom of Mind Resource Center. Bite stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotional control. Does your group meet any of the following criteria? So you can go to their organization and you can read all about that. You can take the quiz and you can learn about mental health, their crisis care. They have an LGBTQ plus little tab on their website, a blog. You can learn about what they do and you can get involved. So I highly encourage you to visit daretodoubt.org.